So I'm just going to move on to the movie and we'll just kind of discuss this thing here. Um, the movie itself, like I said, it's the end of the, you know, the Pangborn trilogy specifically, but also Castle Rock in general. And, you know, with the epilogue being, you know, it grows on you after. Uh, the movie, the movie version starts off showing the sweeping shots of the town on the waterside. You see this black ominous car pulling into the sleepy little town. Beautiful classic Mercedes. Yeah, you get this, uh, you know, and it's it's very, I mean, it's very fitting for the character. Uh, you get introduced to uh, Nettie and Alan and Polly before revealing that the new business is opened up across from the dot, which is where Nettie and Polly work, uh, which, interesting bit of uh, trivia, the dot was actually featured on some kind of television series filmed in British Columbia, because that's where this was filmed at. Uh, or, or or filmed in Canada or whatever, and they and and they just reused the dot like setting it for this movie. I I think because the director had some kind of involvement in both of them, but it's just kind of interesting that it existed in both. You see Brian Rusk uh, be the first to enter the store. Uh, he meets Leland Gaunt, who says he's from Ohio, Akron. It doesn't sound like he's from Akron, Ohio, but well, you know that's that's a whole other issue. Uh, you get introduced to Wil- Wilma Jerzyk, you know, because uh, uh, Leland Gantz instantly uh, wants to know what's up with the crazy lady that's out there talking about turkeys. And this is an improvement from the book because in the book, Wilma Jerzyk was a grocery store clerk. And there is no way this woman's personality would work as a grocery store clerk at all. She has not got the she's not got the personality for customer service. I mean, in the book, she is described as a person who lives for chaos. She lives for fighting with other people. If she can if you even halfway mention something bad to her, she gets the light in causing you misery over it. And that's how she lives her life. I mean she is the worst piece of shit person that you can think of. And there's no way that a person like that would I mean it if that's all they could hire at that store as what I'm gonna say is that they I mean and that, that town's fucked because I, I I would not go to a store that woman worked at, you know, honest. Driving to the next town to get your groceries. Exactly. Now her is a you know, hateful psychotic turkey farmer, that works. She's out on her own, her own, you know, her thriving and chaos can function at that point because she's, you know, runs her own business. But I do not see her working for somebody else with her attitude. Just don't. Um, <laughs> uh, Leland uh, makes his first sale to Brian, of course. It's for a Mickey Mantle card. In the book, it's for a Sandy Koufax card, but they, they swatch, they swip, or switch out a lot of the different, you know, items in the movie. So that that's fine. Uh, I feel like Mickey Mantle is just one of those classics. Like you hear the name and it's definitely a more popular card. It is. And it works for that reason. But on the other hand, and this is something that I have a critique of the movie versus the book and the book, you not only find out that Leland Gaunt sells you junk, like it looks to the person who's buying it like it's the best thing since sliced bread. But anybody else who sees it, yeah. it's a broken piece of junk and it's nowhere near what he sold it to be. Like if he sold you a mint condition Mickey Mantle, when somebody else sees that card, it's bent, it's ripped up in places, it's got, I mean, it's got scuff marks. All, it's it's the opposite of what you see it as. It yes, plays I do it, remember that. It's kind of a, the you know, one man's junk is another man's treasure types, you know, situation. It's like it's all in the eye of the beholder. So the thing that I think is good about the book having it as Sandy Koufax is that it's Brian not getting, you know, and, and they make a point of this in the book. You don't get what you absolutely want off of Leland Gaunt. You get something that in your mind is reasonable from Leland Gaunt. Like you would never go up to him and get like a, you know, 10 gold bars for like a buck or whatever, because your mind would not believe that you could buy that for that. But you could believe that you could buy like a knockoff, you know, whatever else. And, you know, and you, and you paid like a smaller amount for it. 
it. You got a deal on that. It's you know what I'm saying. It's like yeah. I, I think King understood the retail mentality a little bit better than what they portrayed in the movie because there's no way that a kid's going to believe that he can buy a Mickey Mantle card for like you know ninety some cents and and a prank. Whereas a Sandy Koufax card. You maybe could get that. I don't know. I, I He's not that big of a name that even stood out to me. So I'm just like, okay. I mean, and it's it's one of those weird things where people don't always like the, the name stuff anyways. It's like, you know, people, especially collectors, they get, they like the B stuff a lot of times, you know, like the, the also, the, the stuff that nobody else like focuses on, you know, uh, horror movie collectors are especially like this. It's like, okay, you've got, you know, Stephen King's Needful Things. Wow, who, who gives a shit? I got Knight Rider's son. You know, I got the, the one, you know, uh, George Romero movie that nobody know, fucking knows about. You know you know what I'm saying? It's like... Exactly. So I feel like Mickey Mantle, in a sense, plays better to an audience that would say, okay, this is a very valuable card and this kid, so obviously, but if but if you get down to the psychology of it, Stephen King had it better in the book because he went with a, a second tier thing that somebody would be more likely to believe they could get from Gone, you know? Mm, okay. And so, of course, he only asked for uh, Brian for the money in his pocket. Not all of it. He wanted him to to dicker with him. That's that's his specific words. He want he 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 likes the art of the you know the negotiation basically art of the deal to quote another <laughs> person out there. That's not very that a lot of people would say is probably the devil too. And and a little prank, just a little prank to that's all you have to do and you, it's yours. And so, of course, this is the point where, you know, Gaunt starts wiring together the different fuse boxes that he knows specifically are within the small town. You know, it's like uh, I'm going to wire Wilma Jerzyk to Nettie Cobb by use of these two other people so that no, nobody knows who who actually did it. But the two involved think that the other two, you know, that they did it. So they start fighting and on and on and on, you know. And that's kind of the gist of the movie. And it goes on from there. I mean, we'll get into some more of the specifics, but that that's the gist of the movie. He starts wiring together all these little small town feuds that, that never really bubble to the surface and, and get cleared up and, and you know, and he sparks them and then just watches, you know, you know, the whole thing blow up when it, and literally at the end. So likes to watch the world burn. Uh yeah, basically. <laughs> um now I'm going to go through my positives of this movie first and you can and rank yours because I've got a lot of negatives and I'm going to save them for last because I it's <laughs> it, it, that's the tone of this. I'm going to set it up before we ever get to our rating. I'm, I'm negative on this movie. I mean, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen, but there's a lot of bad to it. So the positives for me is that some of the consolidations in the movie, while I believe that a, a longer movie and possibly a miniseries or a television series, especially with today's you know, uh, streaming that we, that we're used to would have been way better for this. And, and I think, and we'll get to that. Everybody involved in this agreed that it would have been better as multiple, you know, connected stories. They, the consolidations they did, as far as like, I'll give an example in the book, Polly owned a sewing shop that she worked with Nettie. The diner was not where she, they, they went there sometimes, but the diner was owned by a Catholic woman named Nan who owned part of the, who's like a big time owner in the town. So it was like they, they, they combined those two places together. They made Polly like the owner of the dot and that's kind of, you know, and then, you know, went from there. They did a lot of things like that in the movie, like combined, you know, two or three different things together that way that it, you know, cut down on runtime. That was good and it was necessary for the single movie they were making. I still think that it would have been better if it had multiple, but they did good with that. Let's see. The making Wilma Jerzyk, a turkey farmer, I've already said, way better than what the book had. You know, Yeah, that, way better. She just doesn't make sense as a grocery store clerk. Uh, Max von Sydow, he stole this movie. 
He he literally stole it. There's no, I mean, I, I, JT Walsh does a you know uh, does his own weird thing in this movie, and it stands out too. And Ed Helms or Ed Harris does his best to uh, you know as, in the role of Alan. But I'll get to that in the negatives or something about that too. But yeah. Max von Sydow just chews up the scenery. It's his movie, you know. I mean, do you have any comments on that, like specifically about the acting, like anybody that stood out to you uh, specifically? Unfortunately, I do not because, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everyone played their part, but it's, uh, even Leland Gaunt in general, I mean, I know this person owns the movie, blah, 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 I mean, but, (laughs) all right, let's move on because I need to save this for critique. Okay, okay, that's fine. I'm going to throw this in there, this little thing, but I, I did like the scene where Gott mentions the, knowing the carpenter Jesus. You know, I thought that was a pretty interesting line they threw yeah, in there. Yeah, that was cool, actually. Uh, it was added by the new, the, the, the last director, and I'll get into that whole series of drama later in the trivia part of this, but um, Fraser Heston was the one that added this line, and it was more of a reference to the fact, a sly little reference to the fact that Sida, or Cedow had played, you know, Jesus in, in one of his older movies. But it was a good line, and I, I liked how it was delivered. And I did think that, that Amanda Plummer did a pretty decent job as Nettie. She wasn't exactly as she was in the book. Uh, she was more neurotic in the book, a little bit more uh, like she very OCD. Like there was a point in the book where like, and this kind of got on my nerves uh, actually. And for Stephen King's credit, she goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for like, I want to say like five pages trying to figure out if she locked up her house it, you know that sort of thing because like she was afraid to leave it and that's because she oh. she was going to leave her dog in the house and Wilma Jerzyk had already threatened to do something to her and she's afraid of leaving her dog and she's also afraid of leaving her needful thing and I'll get into that too that's something in the book that's not in the movie and I think it should have been but uh, but I mean she's very neurotic and and I think Amanda Plummer played the part on screen well enough they they had to leave some of that out because of runtime. But you get the gist of that she's kind of just, you know, kind of kooky. So I, she did a pretty good job with her character. One interesting thing about Amanda Plummer that I want to throw out, and I don't know if you may have visually seen this, but I sure did, is that she reminded me of the the sick sister in, in Pet, Pet Cemetery. I thought the same exact thing the entire time. I looked up on IMDb whenever I first started researching this thinking, I was like, she has to be. She has to be that. That Zelda, I think, is the name of the sister. Yeah, Zelda's the name. Was not, was not her. And I'm just like, that is crazy. She looks exactly like the person they got to play that part. Wasn't even a woman. It was a I know, man I, that I know, played Zelda. I know, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> if you have any more positives to add, go ahead because I just got a string of negatives at this point. So it's hard because okay, one thing is I did read the book as a child. And I swear I only have like one detail and I'm going to need to confirm this with you because I did not Google it. I want to try to see if I remembered this correctly. So we will discuss it at the end because it is towards the end of the movie that the situation happens. And I'm like, okay, I know this was towards the end of the book. And I honestly don't remember much more from the book. I do remember. I don't know if you're reading it and if it's scarier. Well, the books are always scarier. So I guess that doesn't really count. Your imagination is a lot better than any budget that a movie's ever going to have, period. I mean, it just is. I'm going to have to save it because I just don't have any specific positives at this point. Because I both liked and disliked this movie, not for specific reasons, other than I'm rewatching it as an adult, and it's hard to 
remember that I loved it as a child, but now I'm an adult and I feel a little bit differently about it now. <laughs> and I can't think of a specific reason. I do know I pointed out a few things in the movie. Are we going to go through all the things in the movie? I mean, you can go through them at times. I'm just, I mean, I, I kind of steered away from that a little bit in my critique of it because my overall critiques, well, I mean, I get to it later. I do because I'm comparing it to the book, but I mean, it's, my critiques of the movie proper are mainly about, uh, you know, like uh, the next thing I'm going to talk about is the music. Stuff like that, like overall things, you know, like they're not really. Oh, okay. So. These are just certain points of the movie that I saw and I was kind of like, mm, okay. At the beginning when Brian sees the baseball card and he says Leland is giving him the price. Well, not giving him the price. They're negotiating it. And Leland says he just wants a deed. And this card was 95 cents. And I was thinking. Dirty deeds done dirt cheap. I don't, and I'm like, why am I thinking things like this? Why am I like this? Uh, Stephen King had that, you know, uh, Maximum Overdrive, it was the, the, I think the soundtrack was entirely ACDC, so that's not far off. So Okay, okay, good. So I'm glad I'm not the only crazy person that does this during films. I just have one more thing that I want to point out, and then I'll go through the rest as we continue through the movie. But Nettie has a hell helm. <laughs> Did you catch that? Because she totally has a Rottweiler. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to get to that too. That's, that's, uh, that's a critique I have from the book because the book's way more powerful in that scene just because it's not a hellhound in the book at all. At all. Well, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so. Okay, let's move forward. Okay, the music. I'm going to get this right out of the way. The music was awful in this. It was very uneven. I didn't really catch that. <laughs> it was very, it was clumsily used. I'll give you a perfect, it didn't fit the tone of the movie at times. I'll give you a perfect example. This is the one that, that made me think of this because upon rewatching it, you know, for my critical part of this, uh, you know, whole thing. When Brian Russ goes to the Jersey farm to, to do the mud slinging, shit slinging, he also gets turkey shit in there and throws it on the sheets. He, uh, in the book, he's all worried about getting caught and which you would be if you were a kid. And I mean, it's, and even less in the book, he should have been because, you know, Wilma, you know, went off and worked at another location. This was her farm. She would have been there. So for him to have went to that farm, he would have been worried about getting caught to a certain extent by the person that was there. The music that plays, it's a big swelling, like, you know, grand thing that starts playing when he gets there. It's like this whimsical type music, like the kind of like that you would see in a movie about a kid that's, you know, like sudden that's on his bike and he's just enjoying the day. And and it doesn't fit the scene at all. Like, I mean, it should have been like this tense, like, you know, like, you know, music kind of like that piano harpsichord like real sharp sounds like you're always looking over your shoulder wondering who's gonna you know like sneak up on you who's gonna catch you in the act of throwing this mud and like it's totally not that like it's just him having this grand old time and this you know real light-hearted whimsical music and I'm just like what the hell did, were they thinking when they did this I mean and it's not the only time in the movie there are several other times where they they do like this kind of goofy light-hearted music particularly around Buster's scenes. And I'm like, if you want to sell him as a villain, don't play him as like this jovial, like goofball type character. I mean, that doesn't sell the horror of him being like a Renfield at all. Yeah, that makes sense because for him specifically, he was comical. That's all I can say because he wasn't threatening or scary or menacing in any kind of way. And honestly, in the book, he wasn't painted as the, you know, malicious, you know, like thing that you worried about. He was the he was the thing in the background that was going to, you know, kind of set off some more dominoes. But he was like the third wheel in the unholy, uh, you know, 
triumvirate or whatever, the, the Unholy Three, between, uh, in the book, it was uh, Leland Gaunt, Ace Merrill, who did the bulk of the work for Leland Gaunt, and then Buster was like the wild card. He was the one that was like the bottom of the rung. He was the one that threw a, you know, the, the wrench into everything. And there was several times, and they hint at it in the movie, but there's several times in the book where Buster, you know, contemplates suicide because he's not like, he's not... He's crazy, and in the book they give a reason why he has a legit family history of psychosis that he's probably inherited, and it didn't really start uh, really um, coming to fruition until he started going to the racetracks, like young in in his life, and you know as part of a job thing he was just kind of drugged there, and he realized that he like had this gambling like you know addiction that he never knew he had, like he had he had none of the other psychosis or addictions that his family his his parents or his dad in particular had, and his uncle. But he had, but gambling was his, and when he got into gambling, that just set him down the path. And so he's more of a sympathetic character in some ways, even though he's still kind of a piece of shit. But in the movie, they just play him as just like too broad. I mean, like he's just too comical and like too, and I mean, and, and the music doesn't help at all in that sense. Yeah, definitely not because he just came off laughable. And then one other thing I was going to say is that horrible scene of Ave Maria playing over Gone as he's smiling and stapling his fingers in his leather armchair as he's enjoying the chaos that he's you know caused to happen in the town. That is so heavy-handed. It's so amateurish. It, it really makes this movie seem to be more like a you know the the made-for-TV film that it, it feels like. You know, it, it, I mean, you know, it's just this big, you know, Ave Maria playing, you know, grandiose and him sitting there just smiling and his eyes twinkling. And I'm just like, oh my God, you know, um, it, it comes to a complaint I have in the movie versus the book in general. Anytime they would switch to switch to Gaunt specifically in the book, it was more about his thought process what he was trying to accomplish. It was a little bit of monologuing, and that can be bad in ways, and I, and I could see how that would be bad in a movie. But there was ways that you could give more depth to Gaunt himself as a character when you switched to him during these scenes instead of just showing these just Hallmark movie-esque like scenes of him just like, you know, chuckling and, you know, having a good old time. It didn't add to the movie at all. Like, it was just cutting back to him and him smiling, and then it cut back to the chaos. Give me something more gaunt in those scenes. Like, I mean, you know, what he's thinking, you know, like some, there's a great many scenes in the book where he's like, you know, doing one-on-one deals with people. And like, he starts out being like this very pleasant, very accommodating person to Brian. And then everybody else after that, he gets more and more sadistic to the point that literally when people walk into his door toward the end of it, he's like putting them in a trance, which he does in the book. And that's a whole other thing I'll get into. And instantly just talk, telling them to shut the hell up. He's going to tell them exactly what to do, and he's tired of their shit. And, I mean, it's you see that progression in the book. You never see it in the movie. You never see anything like that, you know. Yeah, in the movie, he's very basic bitch, pumpkin spice, latte-type horror. I mean, he's not, there's no real depth that he's adding, which listening to stories of the book, listening to people talk about the book, I realized just how much more to him there is in the book. And the movie watered it down a lot. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's just scenes like that with that, that grandiose music playing that just totally ruined <laughs> any kind of development they could have had for the character. It really did. Um, I think I was just numb while watching this movie, honestly, <laughs> uh, because it didn't affect me as much. Um, but now when you were talking about Buster, yeah, I did catch that. I did catch the Ave Maria. I didn't 
think too much about it in terms of irritating me. But you're right. They could have added just a little bit more than him just sitting there. Tapping his fingers together like the typical villain, he might as well have he, had some mustache twirling going on. He's he's literally like Mr. Burns in The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah, that, in exactly. That scene. He's got his fingers stapled together and he could have said, excellent. You know, like that, that could have been it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And this plays into the, this goes right back into the music. This is another facet of the movie, the cinematography. It was so amateurish in this movie. It didn't add anything to it. And I'll get an example I have of this is there was these weird times where it would have these angles and zooms that, that were more wacky than there were anything else. Like, you'd have scenes where you would start out on Buster or, like, Nettie, and they would be, and I guess to symbolize that the character's kind of off-tilt herself, but the camera would be, like, sideways, and then it'd do this weird little, you know, twist to get, you know, or zoom in on their face or whatever, and it was, it was really goofy, and it didn't add anything to the horror element of the movie, and it was more comedic than it was anything else. It, it almost reminded me of a Sam Raimi, of somebody attempting a Sam Raimi-style like weird camera thing, but not done nearly as well. You know what I'm saying? It was like you, you take like scenes from Evil Dead and like, you know, completely, and, and instead of having the whole movie kind of be like those interesting camera angles, just kind of pepper them into what is mostly just a workman light, you know, let's keep it, you know, everything mostly in frame, you know, not really move the camera that much type movie otherwise, and throw these little goofy like things in there, it really is not tonally consistent in, in the cinematography Yeah, either. and it's hard because I try to base the movies that I'm watching when I think about the filming and the staging, I try to think about when it was made. But the fact remains that there's no excuse because there are other films that were made in this timeline that had way better filming going on. So while I would like to use the excuse, oh, well, it was the 90s. There were other movies that were made in even the 70s and 80s that had way better filming than this. If you want to, if you want an example of the difference, uh, Dark Half, and by weird coincidence, even though it was filmed in 1991, came out in 1993, the same year as Needful Things. One came out the beginning of the year, one came out the end of the year. There, it's night and day in the cinematography. You take George Romero and what he did with Dark Half, and I mean, it's there's all these dark scenes. He plays on the tension with the way he films it. It's night and day versus this movie. I mean, this movie is. You couldn't have asked for a more like 90s made for TV special than what this movie was filmed like. Exactly. You know what? I'm just going to say it now. And this is just a slight interruption because you had mentioned that this might be better if it had been turned into a mini series or something like that. Uh, and I agree with you on that. I mean, we are talking about Stephen King, but do I need to remind you about the Langoliers? <laughs> the Langoliers is the worst. I will give you that. Uh, and a lot of people have fond memories of Stephen King's It, and myself included. But when you go back and watch that movie, it is very amateurish. It also, uh, the only thing that really stands out in that movie is really, uh, you know, the, the portrayal of the actual character It. Uh, you know, uh, the, it's really not, not the rest of the movie at all. It's it's the actor who's playing the part. So. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you. The the nineties uh miniseries, but that's what I'm saying. This movie was was marketed as being like a big budget film. Had a lot of big name actors in it. It did not give off that. But vibe. it fit really well with a lot of his other nineties uh, you know, uh made for T V specials. It really did. All right. 
the special effects. Yeah. Got to get to this. Awful. Yes, they Awful were. Awful in this movie. They really were. Um, they were shoddy and poor even by 1993 standards. You had those little lightning bolt effects that were badly animated that, you know, anytime that somebody touched their needful thing, well, and that's another problem I have with this movie. That's not consistent. You know, not everybody had that problem. I think like Hugh he Priest, did. when he touches his jacket, he doesn't have that lightning bolt, or at least I don't think that, it, or, or somebody in the movie does. He did. Because I remember. I don't think the Baptist character that got the phallic piece the, i don't think he got the lightning bolt effect the baptist didn't and i don't think the catholic priest did either and i don't know whenever he grabbed the chalice which i don't really you know think that it showed Was much that supposed to be the fucking holy grail i don't know because in the book the one person who gets like a religious icon uh is gets like this uh piece of wood that's like a big splinter and yeah from noah's ark and it's noah's ark yeah and so oh, okay so yeah see i do remember some um, details and that makes more sense because you can be- and like going back to what i said about how leland got sells you something that's believable you can believe that a, a old petrified piece of wood might be from the the you know the noah's ark i mean in a sense especially if you're you know really religious but you know trying to believe that you've got the actual chalice there in front of you and like a little store in your hometown that's you know that was the holy grail uh, bullshit you know there's nobody yeah he was really obsessed with that <laughs> and i was like what is that supposed to be well that's a whole other critique of the movie is that they don't uh, half of the things they show in that they don't reveal what they actually even are um and and but i mean when it comes to this these special effects they, they do the lightning bolt effect then they cut to some poorly you know visualized scene of whatever the person's seeing at the time they pick it up and that's a huge complaint I have because the very first thing that we see is when Brian Rusk, he sees like this bad stock footage of Mickey Mantle. And I'm just like, and it looks awful. And I'm like, you couldn't have taken like just a little bit of time to film somebody in place of, you know, like Mickey Mantle, like, you know, with a little bit better updated, you know, movie standard, you know, like at least 1993 that matched the cinematography of the rest of the movie, the video quality, as opposed to having him like live out this like, you know, 19, you know, 50s, 40s, whatever time period like you know broadcast in his mind you know what i'm saying that like in the book no absolutely and i have something to say about that and and brian in the book when brian russ picks up the sandy koufax card he is in the the world with sandy koufax he is right there beside koufax as he's getting ready to to step up to do his pitches or whatever he is you know he's he's hearing the you know the crowd behind him you know he's he's smelling the grass you know he's he's hearing the the crack of the you know the ball against the bat like i mean in the in the movie it's just like no i'm reliving like this old you know broadcast it's like oh man that's like you're watching her on a shitty tv exactly exactly and then and this is something that i'll bring up later is that when, or I mean, that I, that I bring up along the same lines, it's not consistent even in that sense because whenever they, uh, plot-wise it's not because when Brian in the movie picks up and he sees Mickey Mantle, he's seen this old, you know, like highlight reel of Mickey Mantle. It's like, okay. When Nettie picks up her needful thing, she sees like killing her husband. Like why would, and this has always been an aggravation for me watching this movie, if you're trying to sell something to somebody, why would she relive the worst moment of her life, uh, you know, having to break down and kill her husband because he was so abusive to her, and that's the selling point to get her to buy this little tchotchke that she's picking up? Like, I mean, wouldn't you want her to have, like, this this glowing, like, you know, like she picks it up, there's, like, you know, this child that's speaking to her or whatever the tchotchke's supposed to represent, you know? Why would she really, and, and it's like, okay, I picked this thing up and I relived, you know, the worst moment of my life. 
check please you know what i'm saying like it makes no sense yeah well i saw it differently are you talking about what happened in the movie or are you talking about what happened in the book because i don't know if this happened in the book it happened in the movie because in the book okay she relived that scene but that's but that's something else i get to later in the book, it's revealed that when Leland Gaunt touches you, it is extremely unpleasant. He is There's something about his touch that is so repulsive that you instantly, the very first time you shake hands with him or he you know, grazes your arm or anything, you get this extreme revulsion and you never want him to be around you or close to you ever again because you don't want that feeling to ever cross you. It's like a, something that shouldn't exist is touched to you like a, like a tentacle eel or something and you don't want it to ever touch you again. Hmm. And in the movie, he does grab her hand. Yes. At the same time that he hands her the tchotchke, and it could be symbolizing that, but they don't make it apparent. No. And they don't ever. Fo- and, and it might have been something they cut out, and that's something we'll get to later is about the, all the cuts they made to this movie. But it's it, it's like she doesn't get to live her best moment with a tchotchke. It's like she gets to relive her worst moment, and it's only in the book when it, she relives her worst moment is when Leland gets pissed off at her, and he specifically grabs her arm and makes her relive that moment. You know what I'm saying? So it it doesn't it doesn't make sense within the plot of the movie. Well, two things. The very first thing that happens when he meets Brian is he shakes his hand and nothing. Nothing happens. Exactly. That is right. I remembered. I was like, there's somebody he shakes hands with and it doesn't happen. So there you go. He shakes hands with Pingborn as well. And that's some, and that's something else that I hate is that, and, and, and I, it wouldn't matter if you hadn't read the book. It's fine if you watch it in the movie, but I hate it as somebody who read the book. In the book, he never gets to meet Pangborn, or Pangborn never gets to meet him because Gaunt goes out of his way to not have Pangborn ever come into his shop because yeah. Pangborn can see the junk as it is like pain oh, because pain isn't there too isn't there like another character that knows what's up uh there's only one other character that sees the junk and that's only whenever he about whenever he attempts suicide toward the end of the book and that's norris ridgewick norris ridgewick can finally see through the junk at that point but pain but pangborn can see through the junk because pangborn was exposed to the supernatural in the dark half whenever he met george stark that he 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 now can see you know like that opened up like something in his like mind in his psyche that he, yeah. in his psyche he can accept the supernatural and so he sees past the illusion as it was like it no longer like his past experience or brush with the supernatural has gave him that ability and God even mentions in the novel and this just makes it so much you know a meteor story and better written when you you combine them like that. Gone even mentions he's like you know there's always two or three people that's in a t- you know that every town that I go to that is a problem because they can see through my ruse. But he said Painborn in particular is a problem because Painborn can see more than anybody I've ever met in my life. And so you know that and in the movie it's just like Painborn walks in there it's like hey how you doing and he's all buddy with him and it just kills me from a book perspective because Gaunt ne- that Gaunt specifically knew Painborn was his one true enemy in the town and he would have never let him in that that shop period. Well the tension I get from the characters in the movie here is one positive. I don't remember the book so much so obviously that doesn't phase me. When Painborn and Leland were together, yes, they were kind of buddy buddy. But you can feel or sense the tension between the two, primarily from Pangborn. I definitely sense some jealousy from Pangborn when his fiance sent over a pie, which I thought was kind of weird and useless. <laughs> yeah, and that's not that's not in the book at all. Like, I mean, he, yeah. Oh, I figured because that was so unimportant. <laughs> 
but there was definitely a look of surprise on Leland's face when Pangboard said, I have everything I need. And the look on Leland's face was kind of a, oh shit, but not in a way that he was scared, more of a, okay, this shop is for somebody that needs something and you are clearly a man that is not in need of anything. As for the netty part, I got a completely different vibe, which was interesting because what I saw was not so much that she just killed her husband, which we understand she killed her husband. They throw it in your face. Like, we get it. You vape. What I saw is that she really loved this little figurine that looked like a precious moment. I don't know. Figure. She loved it so much. That when her husband exactly yeah violently broke it, she just lost her spirit. So that figurine hitting the ground was like the last thing she saw get broken before, one, she either broke his face, or two, maybe he went out on her violently, which ultimately led to her having to protect herself and kill him. Now, for whatever reason, she really loved this figurine and had such an attachment to it, so when she saw it in the shop... You could just see it in her spirit. She was so happy again. Now, the other one was the jacket, which the jacket and the figurine were actual things that you could touch and I could see potentially replicated. So they kind of made a little bit more sense to me. The only thing I'll say in counter to that is if they wanted to play that route, and that's that's a good way to look at it. I'm not disagreeing with you at all. That's probably what they were intending. But there's two things to that. If they wanted to go that route, they should have focused on her enjoying the Chotsky for a minute or two in her mind and her memory before he came up and smashed it. That way you let her got a better... Because that was one of those scenes that was also poorly cut and poorly edited where it was like constant swoops around and all that. If they would have just lingered on her for a moment and how much peace that, that that thing brought her before her husband came in and smashed it, then you would got more of that image that you're talking about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it you almost... just had to imagine in your head that she loved it so much <laughs> because you really didn't get any indication. But the other thing in the movie is it almost paints it the other way and makes it seem like she is a, uh, you know, a sadistic person herself because if that's supposed to be the thing that she enjoys then and, and they focus more on the side of where she you know, almost killed her husband or they didn't quite show her killing her husband that scene, but it led up to that scene, it's almost symbolizing the fact that, that Tchotchke gives her pleasure because it reminds her of killing her husband, and which was enjoyable for her to Ooh. do. You know what I'm saying? It almost paints it the other way around. I like the way you think. <laughs> That could make sense, and I guess it all just depends on how you view it, and I like the way you're viewing it because it's a little darker. It's giving the movie way too much credit, but I mean, that's... uh... It is giving the movie too much credit, but it's also things that you have to use your imagination. I think there were certain things in this film that they could have actually shown. You know how we always say, like, don't show everything, leave a little to the imagination? I think they did that way too much in this film. Yeah, they they did, and it, I mean, I even like they they were. I was reading in the you know the the trivia about how they sp- they basically focused all their budget on trying to recreate a skin dog, which I guess I should have put this at the top of the episode. Retro Raggy, we got it. We yeah, we we got a we got a dead dog in this one. Retro Scooby. Really. <laughs> Which was one of the reasons it was rated R, by the way. Yes, I have to throw this out there. This movie was rated R for sexual content, which was passionate kissing on a bed at best, 
mind yeah, you. Yeah, that, that's I'll get to that. That was a cringe scene, but we'll go on. Yes. <laughs> and the only scary scene, scary and emotional, uh, we have the Roro Reggie uh, scene that we mentioned. We have a doggy death. <laughs> But they the the thing about that doggy death is is they they spent all their budget on making this uh this you know skin dog prosthetic and I don't even remember it being in the movie for like more than a split second like at all. Ah uh, yes, maybe <laughs> a whole second if you put the two scenes together. Which by the way, did you like the way it looked at all? I did. Uh, I didn't. I it don't stand out in my mind at all. Like just because it was so quick. Are you serious? I mean, for me, I thought they did good. It it had to be. I was more scared than sad. It had to be good because Amanda Plummer, who was a, a big animal lover, I mean, oh, would God. would refuse to look at the prosthetic before they they went in there and or the 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 piece before they filmed. And that that reaction she has in the movie is her real reaction. That's the first time she saw it, and it freaked her out so bad that she literally broke down on set. I did know? too. I do not remember this as a child unless. It was such a bad memory. It I just forced it out of my head. The kids definitely enjoyed it. But to be fair, you are correct. It is maybe a split second. We had to rewind and pause and play in slow motion just to try to get the full effect. But I thought they did a good job. Money wasn't well spent because I feel like it could have been... You would have been sad for the dog because it's a dog death. But... They focused on it being so scary, and when it comes to budget, there's other things they could have done. Honestly, if they had just shown, like, a basic dead dog, they could have just had a fake furry dog laying on the floor with a little bit of blood around it, and you would have basically had gotten the idea that, oh, shit, this dog was killed by this man. You would have been sad. I think that would have been just fine, but they went full-blown scary Horrific. I mean, this dog was skinned and tied up with its paws behind its neck. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, yeah, they that's... did good with the dog scene. It was the only thing that stuck out to me. You asked if I had any positives, and that was the only one. I didn't want to spoil it. Well, I'm I'm glad. I mean, that was the one thing that they focused on, so at least they got that, even if the, the rest of the special effects look like shit in comparison. That's where they hit the mark, you know. That's the, as far as my critique of just the movie itself taking it upon its own like merits. That's that's where I mean I my beginning and end. I you know it, it had you know just everything came together to make it just look like a slapdash made for TV movie. Despite the fact they had these veteran actors, these you know uh, people who in every other way did a good job with what they had available. It's just you know the the you know the plot of the movie and how can how much was cut out of it just didn't work. I mean, you know, because that's my biggest complaint about the movie in general. If we're going, I mean, just one more thing about the movie, the plot. I You go from a few scenes of a couple of people fighting each other to literally in like a, a few minutes, uh, you know, or it feels like just a few minutes later in the movie, the whole town's like at each other's throat and, and blowing up. And you're like, how did we get to this point? Because the movie does not give you the background information. To, to I mean, it's it's another one of those instances where you were talking about how you have to infer it. It's like in your mind, all these people in the background are doing their own little fi- infighting, but it's never, there's nothing in the movie to hint at that at all. The only one thing I remember of that, which is stupid because they didn't focus enough on how badly these things were needed and how possessive these people were over these. I only got one instance at the very end of the movie, and it was one guy that was like, you stole my Treasure Island book. (laughs) 
Yeah. That's the only instance. And you were like, oh, he's obsessed with his first edition Treasure Island book. It's hard because without the visual effect of what you said at the beginning of this review, where in the book it looked like shit, but to the person it meant the world to them, it was like, ah, they really should have emphasized that and they should have given them more of a reason to be. They should have just had more supernatural effects on this movie. And I know sometimes horror films try to give off that human horror effect, which they kind of did, even though there was a supernatural entity that made people do horrific things. I get the human horror aspect. I just think they could have done a little more with the supernatural effects. I rarely say that because I know you can overdo it. Let's divert real quick to Leland Gaunt to show why I think they could have gone a little more supernatural. Great actor. I really thought that his mischievous tone was amazing. I never really, even though in the book we know who Leland Gaunt is, in the movie they never really quite tell who he is, unless I miss something. Now, my daughter. There's one line in the movie where he's, there, yeah, there's one line in the movie where he's talking to, I believe it was uh, Hugh Priest, uh, when he's handing him the gun so he can go after uh, Harry Buford, Beaufort, or whatever he says. And he, he's basically, that's whenever he's saying, you know, he's like, I've lived for a long time as a peddler and basically like the Middle East or whatever. That's the only time in the movie you get any hint as to what anything about Leland Gaunt in the movie. Yeah, but it doesn't specify in the movie, is he a demon? Is he helping the devil? What is he? That, that's why I put the question mark after devil, because everybody paints him as the devil that watches the movie. Yeah. And that's what the, the directors even kind of, you know, hinted at him as. But in the book, he, he's not that. I mean, he is, I mean, Stephen King, Stephen King paints him as a demonic character, but he doesn't, but he's more of the Lovecraftian mythos. He's more of like, when we talked about the last season of, uh, you know, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, <laughs> he's one of those, uh, you know, humanoid. Trinket salesmen. Yeah. Well, he's one of those human humanoid Lovecraftian figures that travels from town to town uh, sowing chaos. I mean, that's that's what he does. Um, and it even hints in the book, I mean, he, he hails from the plains of Ling, which is like this uh, Lovecraftian, you know, otherworldly. Uh, I think it exists in the dream world in, in Lovecraft's mythology. And uh, that's where he collects the cocaine that he gives uh, to Ace Merrill to keep him, you know, constantly on his leash is, is from the plains of Ling. And you don't know what... Uh, you know, Ace Merrill is snorting if it's coming from this other world dimension, but you can be assured that it's, you know, even worse than what cocaine would be as far as like what it's doing to his body and his brain and everything else. But, uh, it's almost like dream dust or something. And then, which, oh wow, and, uh, and then there's one scene where Merrill goes to uh, pick up the car for uh, Leland Gaunt. Cause that's one of the bones that I've picked. Uh, my, the rest of my critiques are just, you know, the, the book versus the movie in the book, Leland Gaunt just appears like, his shop's there one day, he's in the next, no explanation where he came from, nothing else. That adds to the supernatural, you know, kind of, you know, background to him. It's like, where'd this guy come from? How did he get into town? And you, and at one point, he has uh, Ace Merrill go and get his car at this location that's like in a rundown part of like one of the neighbor neighboring cities, 
And it's like when he goes there, it's so creepy. There's like nobody there. And the people that are like the one or two, the homeless people are there. They've got this weird look about them. Like they're emaciated, not just on drugs, but like there's like their spirits been stripped out of them. He goes to this, uh, you know, the, the, when he goes inside the garage, like he, there's a tape player inside of it that plays on its own and it's not plugged up and it's gone. That's, you know, clearly he's not been in this place in years because there's dust all over everything, but Gaunt just like recently recorded this and tells him exactly what to do and what to pick up. And, you know, it's kind of explained away, you know, Merrill's like, you know, really freaked out by it, but he, he has a bump of cocaine and he's able to deal with it. But I mean, oh, shit. And, and you got to remember, that's that's a little bit of trivia about this movie. This was the first book Stephen King wrote when he became sober. So he had literally for years been on cocaine and every other drug imaginable. So he knew. Oh, yeah. So he was writing Ace Merrill in this movie. It's, it's a stand in for himself. He had some depth to add. Yeah. And so, there, but there's a mention in, in the garage, like there's something written like near it that says, uh, you know, all hell Yog sothoth or something like that. And that is a Lovecraftian god or elder being. So there's a, uh, Leland Gaunt is more of a Lovecraftian creature than he is technically a demon in the novel. In the book, they don't. That's still a supernatural thing, though. I mean, no matter how you paint him, the movie should have given us more of that. I mean, look it. My daughter said, and she all but ruined any optimism I may have had for this movie. But she said, if this were a demon or the devil standing in my room, she said, you would laugh at him. And if you can't take the devil seriously, then he can't control you. <laughs> well, and, and I was like, okay, that's true. It's it's fair, and and they add a lot. And Stephen King, I feel in the movie they tried to make him too humanized, and in the book Stephen King plays uh, does a very good job, despite the fact that he's hypercritical of this book. And I think it's mostly because it was his first sober book, and he's hypercritical of the job he did. But he did a really good job, in my opinion, of like straddling the line because Leland Gaunt appears human. He mostly acts human, but there's the things with his fingers, like or you know being like all the almost all the same length, which is all already creepy. Uh, they're really long. His his touch is, you know, repulsive, which goes into another scene, going back to what you said earlier, that love scene or whatever. If his touch is that repulsive to, you know, Nettie, then why can he touch, uh, why can he have a love scene where he's rubbing all over Polly Chalmers? You know why? Don't make any sense. I have the you, answer. You know? <laughs> I have the answer. What was in that necklace besides stupid looking electricity? Tannis root. <laughs> it was Tannis root. Oh, that is that that is a good point. They could have went that route in the movie. I didn't even think about it. And then the devil could seduce her. In the book, it's totally different. It's like some kind of like uh, Lovecraftian, like spider, like creature that is actually. That's thank you. <laughs> you confirmed the one thing I remember from the book, or that I think I remember. Wasn't there a huge spider that crawls out of the necklace? Yeah, and it feeds on her. Yeah, it feeds on her, and it goes from the size of a quarter to the size of like oh, a yeah. small chihuahua or something in the course of like a few minutes. And she has to fight this thing in the dark, you know, uh, with her hands still arthritic. Now, they're not like in the movie. In the movie, she goes like full bore, like her hands are totally crippled as soon as she rips this off. When she rips it off in the book, it's another one of those signs that his stuff is junk because her fingers are bad but they're just a tad bit more than what they were with the trinket on. And she's like, why the fuck did I have this on the entire time? You know, and that goes plays into the whole junk thing. He sells you junk and makes you think that you've been, you've bought like the, you know, the greatest treasure that was ever existed in the history of mankind. Yeah. They really don't show that very well. Can we rewind real quick to the first time that she met Leland Gaunt and he was like, Oh, 
the pain in your hand is so bad. And she was like, how did you know? And he was like, I spoke to Nettie. And she can't shake his hand. She's like, I don't shake hands, which would have played really well if you knew that once you touched him. You yeah. saw horrible things. Yeah. That's a whole thing. But then she goes and she picks up a full carafe of coffee with that hand <laughs> and pours him a cup. I didn't even think about that. Is, that is good. That is another side of this movie. It just doesn't know. It. And you know what? They could have had a scene in between that that would have you know explained her hand getting slightly better but then they cut it out because that's the thing this movie was originally filmed as a four-hour movie and they cut out two hours of it uh, at least an hour and a half counting commercials so uh they could have had a little in-between scene like that and and who knows but that that's another sign it's like you know one thing to the next it doesn't make any sense as far as the plot goes why she you know how as an actor or an actress do you do that and say, okay, my line is this, but then I'm going to go pick up this heavy-ass carafe. I can't even shake a hand, even if you just placed your hand in someone else's hand while they moved it up and down. But you can grab a full-ass carafe. Look, I'm a girl. I'm weak, okay? That's all I'm saying. But... It seems like it would hurt a lot more to grab a carafe. Look, I had trigger finger and I wouldn't have been able to do that. And she has full-blown crippling arthritis. It's it, it's just another one of those things where they, they cut so much and they were just trying to get a movie out that they, they, I don't think continuity was even on their, you know, the board of things they were worried about, honestly. I really don't. Yeah, it is hard. Look, I really hate being the type of person that says, oh, the book is so much better. That's such a hipster fucking thing to do. And you're right. Stephen King was very, very proud of this book, and he should be. He did a great job, especially coming off of serious drugs. I feel like a lot of great artists, whether you're a musician or you're a painter or, or you know, you're writing stories, there's so many examples of what a great artist is, but... Their visions while they're on various narcotics is just insane. It's it's amazing what they come up with. That's the thing. He's hypercritical of this, though, in particular, meaning that he's, he dogs on it because he says that it's not, you know, super... I mean, like, the supernatural is not as interesting as some of his other stuff. And I would argue the opposite. I mean, I, I feel like he did a good mix in this. Oh, because, yeah. Like, I'm just going to get into it, some of the difference of the book. Leland God himself. Okay, let's, let's rally this out there. His eye color changes every time that he looks at somebody. You know, that goes into the whole thing about, you know, uh, the eyes are the windows to the soul type, you know, scenario. So if somebody can change their eyes to everybody they meet, then that means that they're, you know, what's behind them, you know, obviously it's A, not human, but also there's there's something, you know, really dark and twisted because you can never get like, you know, that person, you can never get an uh, angle on them as in general because their eyes never speak what, what's in, within them. And, and he used it to his benefit because if he knows, like, say you were, your grandpa had like these ice blue eyes and you always remember that about your grandpa and you loved your grandpa, then he, he would have ice blue eyes when you looked at him. You know, that way you felt like, oh, this like guy's like my grandpa, you know, like that sort of thing. He, he welcomed you in with his eyes that he could change at any, you know, moment. He was from, you know, like I said, the dream world, the Lovecraftian dream world type thing. He talked to people in his dreams. He never, in the movie, it shows him like leaving the shop and doing all this stuff in town. He never left the shop except toward the end of the book, in in, in the book, because he always communicated to people t- uh, telepathically and through their dreams. If he wanted you to do something, you would have a horrible nightmare, and he would promise you that the nightmares would get worse if you didn't do what he said. Which, there's one scene where Brian's like, I saw him in my 
my dreams. And this kid, he's a child, has a gun to his head. And you have no understanding why. All you have is this horrible explanation, which actually mimics how well a kid explains anything. You know, the actor actually did a great job. But we couldn't see this dream. A 10-second snip of what this kid allegedly saw that was so horrible? <laughs> um, yeah, they probably wouldn't do it exactly how it is in the book. There's a lot of sexual stuff in this, which makes sense. I mean, some people's uh, you know, needful thing is going to be sexually oriented. Like, I'll give you an example. Brian Rusk's mom and her best friend are both obsessed with Elvis. One of them gets a photo of Elvis. Oh, shit. And one of them gets, uh, and his mom gets the sunglasses. Both of them in their dreams are basically having sex with Elvis, and they're literally in their room with these items, like, you know, masturbating. <laughs> so that's their needful thing. That's how they live within their needful thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, that would have tied in really well with the rated R. It, it would have. They totally could have used that if they had to. Um, and Brian Rusk is uh, is in love with his, because he's like a 13, 12 or 13-year-old boy, is in love with his speech teacher in the book. He's got, he don't really, you know. And so there's a scene where he, in his dream, he is being, you know, pleasured, you know, by hand by his teacher and you know which would be really creepy in a movie but you know it's in a kid's dream you know it's that is what it is oh yeah and absolutely. uh then the teacher turns into leland gaunt which is even creepier if you can imagine max von Sydow suddenly with his hand on a kid's you know Ew. member so i'm I, I know why they cut some of those scenes out but uh you know yeah i can understand that but I mean, they could have they could have come up with another type of dream where you know Max von Sydow like just you know hulked out and became like the demonic vision, which is a whole other thing that's in the book that I was going to say about him. He when he gets really mad, his demonic side comes out like smoke comes out of his nose and you know and his mouth, his eyes turn uh, fiery red, like he has like his voice drops like an octave, like you would imagine a demon, and like his face starts like cracking and peeling, like you know like it's on fire. So it would have been cool to see that at some point in this movie at all, you know. And the other thing he does too is that he whenever and this makes way more sense than the movie than the movie ever did to me. Whenever he sells something to you, he knows that he he's, he can't ask too much, and he knows exactly what you're willing to part with. So he always says he's negotiating, but it's not really a negotiation because he he gets you to he gives you just enough of a discount to make you feel like that you've got a deal on it, kind of like J.C. Penney's does in real life. You know, it's like you saved forty percent on this thing. It's like, oh great, this is my favorite thing ever because I saved so much money. But then. He's also on the other side of it. Whenever he asks you to do the, uh, you know, the thing where he wants you to do a trick, it's always whenever he's negotiate. Whenever he's done negotiating and, and it's time for people to pay up and they're agreeing to this stuff, it's all done under a trance. They don't remember any of it, other than the fact that they agreed to do something for Mister Gaunt, and that it's a little simple thing, and that it'll be kind of fun whenever they do it. That's all they remember. They don't remember anything else. And it's like, I would have preferred to seen that in the movie where he's kind of like hypnotizing them. It's like, because I mean, it, you can see a kid possibly agreeing to throw in, you know, turkey shit at Wilma Jerzyk's sheets because she's a horrible person. But then you take somebody that, like the Catholic priest and you get him and like, and he's going to stab somebody's tires for no reason. I'm sorry, but I don't believe that that priest would just be like, oh, hell yeah, I don't like Hugh Priest anyways. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's not like, 
it, it's it's a little much. It's a little stretch of the imagination to. I mean, even if these people are petty, which they are, to just assume that they would automatically agree to do this without some little bit of uh, hypnosis to go along with it to kind of push them along the way. At least the adults, you know. And and side point about all that, Wilma Jerzyk didn't get a needful thing. I don't know if you remember that in the movie, but she don't actually get one. She she goes into the shop, she gets pissed off, and she leaves. So she's she's a byproduct. As shitty as she is, her death is, uh, has nothing to do with her actually uh, involving Leland Gone at all. It's just because, you know, she's the type of person that can easily be blamed for something, and, and she's fine with that. She actually enjoys being blamed for things. She's hot-headed. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, all the stuff with him being supernatural, I really miss in the movie. I'm, I'm with you. They should have at least, if they didn't want to make him full-on supernatural, at least give him a little bit more of a hint of that. He's he's basically just a guy with ugly fingers and nasty teeth, you know, in the movie. The thing they really miss in the movie, well, one thing I got, one more thing I want to say before I get to the story, the novel versus the movie. Did you realize that the, the lead in this movie, Alan Payneborn, is not in the movie for almost an hour? No, I did not, if we're being honest. If you enjoyed this episode of the Review of Needful Things Part 1, please look out for Part 2 coming soon. Death Holler is brought to you by Los Diablos Blancos Network with your host, the Reverend Dr. Death and La Yarena. Please like, subscribe, follow, share, and review. It really helps the show. We'll catch you next time. And don't forget to bring your death certificate.